Several years ago, I had a friend who gave me some bad advice. She concluded by saying, why not? No one would ever know but you and him. I'm sure she saw the look of astonishment on my face as I told her, God would know. I could never do that. If I had followed her advice, it could have destroyed my marriage. It would have shattered the trust that my husband and I had for one another. I was shocked that this Christian friend would even suggest that no one would ever know. For 1 John 3.20 tells us, If our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Although we have continued our relationship, I lost a great deal of respect for her. That's really not the kind of friend that I or any of us needs in our lives. For one, God knows everything. And secondly, what she suggested was definitely against the scriptures. This morning, let's look at an example of some friends in the Bible. Several weeks ago, I was reading this account and I determined that it was something to give more thought to and perhaps use it in preaching. This example is found in the book of Job. Job had been a very wealthy man with much land, animals, and family, so much so that we can't even comprehend all of his riches. Job 1, 1 through 3 reads, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. In Job 1.8, God even proclaimed this as he said, quote, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Wouldn't that be wonderful to have God say that about each of us? We learn in that same chapter that various servants came to Job and reported disaster after disaster, that Job's animals had been stolen by different groups and his servants taking care of them were killed. Not only were the animals and some of the servants destroyed, but while his ten children were feasting at the older brother's house, a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed, and they were all dead. In addition to all these disastrous things happening to Job, Job himself became very ill. When they heard he was ill and disaster had risen, Job's four friends came to see him. At first, one is led to believe that three of these friends were really compassionate and understanding. Job 2 tells us that when they heard about all of his troubles, they set out from their homes and agreed to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him, they hardly recognized him because he had painful sores 
from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. They began to cry, and they even tore their robes. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. They were silent and just sat with him. Well, in the next scene, Job gave a long speech of discouragement, and he concluded that he had no more peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil in his life. His so-called friend, Eliphaz, began to speak. Now, we would hope for some nice encouraging words here, but he condemned Job as he reminded Job that Job himself had given words of encouragement to many in the community, and now he had allowed himself to live in this world of self-pity. He tells Job to listen to the advice that he had given other people. He then says, if it were he, Eliphaz, he would appeal to God and seek forgiveness, implying that Job had done wrong and sinned. He ends his long speech to Job by saying, We have examined this and it's true about you, so hear it and apply it to yourself. Well, after this, Job wasn't smiling, of course. He gave another disparaging talk, and he continued to claim that he was a man of integrity. And then a second so-called friend, Bildad, spoke up. He said to Job, How long will you say such things? If you are pure and upright, even now he, God, will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. For he believed that suffering was a result of sin, and he urged Job to confess his sins and seek God's forgiveness. Well, similar words were spoken by the third man, Zophar. It's Zophar, not Sofar. He told Job that Job was indeed suffering and that he needed to repent of his sin and turn to God to find relief from those afflictions. Well, we meet another of Job's so-called friends later in the story after Job had talked again. Elihu. Elihu was a, a much younger man. He became angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. And he became angry with the three older friends because they couldn't refute Job and yet had condemned him. He claimed they were all wrong. They were all wrong in their understanding of God's ways. Elihu emphasized the idea of God's presence and God's ability to use suffering as a means of discipline and instruction. Well, after listening to these long-winded speeches, Job continues to maintain that he is a man of integrity. Well, after reading the book of Job and thinking about friends, I don't think these friends were very comforting to Job, and they really did not help him. So, if we're looking for friends, we'd hope for better qualities than those of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. So let's consider some other friends in the scriptures. The other example we want to note today are the friends of Daniel. We'll need a little background information to help us understand the events in Daniel. When the people of Israel had become so sinful that God allowed them to be taken as captives of the country of Babylon, so many of the people were taken into exile in Babylon. 
Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these were the new names that the king of Babylon had given them. These three men and Daniel were young, perhaps even young teenagers like some of you are in our congregation this morning. They were now among those in Babylon. This is at the time that Nebuchadnezzar was king, and all four of these young men had displayed exceptional demeanors, admirable qualities, and were promoted to be part of the king's service. Well, as many years went by, Daniel was appointed to the royal court, and he persuaded King Nebuchadnezzar to appoint these three as administrators over Babylon, rather high positions for foreigners. Well, it was at this time that King Nebuchadnezzar, now use your imagination here, Nebuchadnezzar had a very large image of gold erected, 90 feet high. I can't even imagine that. When I look at the silos down at Yosemite, I think they're 30 to 40 feet high, and then imagining 90 feet high and 9 feet wide was this golden image. And he invited all the various rulers in Babylon to come to the dedication of this image. And he demanded then that when the people heard the sound of music, now that's not the movie, The Sound of Music, when they heard the sound of music, various sounds of music, they were to bow down and worship this image. Otherwise, they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, at this same time, there were astrologers that came forward who hated the Jews, and they denounced all the Jews. They reported that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were discovered refusing to follow the edict, and they were not paying any attention to the king. They said to the king, They neither serve your gods nor worship that golden image you have set up. When King Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he called the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in for questioning. I want to read from Daniel 3, verses 13 to 15. He says about Nebuchadnezzar, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sounds of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the God I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That was not the kind of alternative one would hope to hear. The three replied that they didn't need to defend themselves because the God that they served would save them. They also said even if God did not save them, they would not worship the king's gods or worship that golden image. Of course, the king was furious. He ordered that the furnace be made seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest men in the army to tie up all three men securely and throw them into the furnace. Now, these three did not yell, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've changed our minds. We'll do what you say. Just don't throw us into the blazing furnace. No, they did no such thing. They were thrown into the furnace. And as King Nebuchadnezzar 
glanced towards the furnace, what do you think he saw? He saw four men walking around in the furnace, unharmed and unbound, and he thought the fourth one looked like a, a son of the gods. They came out of that fire unscathed, no signs of being burned. Their hair was not singed, nor did they even smell like fire. King Nebuchadnezzar was shocked to learn that they were unharmed, and he proclaimed, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defiled the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now you can read the rest of the story in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. These three men trusted in God and defied the king's command. They were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god but the one true God that we worship. Now let's look at one other example of friendship in the scriptures. It's one of the greatest friendships found, and it is in the example of David and Jonathan. From the scripture I'm going to share, David was not yet king, and Jonathan was King Saul's son. Saul was David's predecessor, and here his son was a very good friend of David. 1 Samuel 18, 1-4 reads, after David, had finished, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe. Now remember, he was the king's son, so it was probably a very fancy royal-type robe. He took off his robe that he was wearing. He gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This was a highly unusual friendship because Jonathan's father hated David, and he tried to harm him many different times in the scriptures. However, Jonathan remained true to his friendship with David, and he defended and protected him right to the end. We read in 2 Samuel, the chapter 9, that after Jonathan's death, David recalled their friendship, and he wanted to honor Jonathan in some way. So he asked his servants, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul, from the house of Jonathan, to whom I can show God's kindness? Well, there was a servant called Ziba who answered the king, and he said, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's very lame in both feet. David heard this, and he had Jonathan's son brought to his home and moved in there, and he lovingly cared for Mephibosheth, the son, until his end. Now, let's talk about your friends and my friends. I am blessed with a group of friends that I've had since seventh grade. Yes, that's a long, long time ago. Yes, a group of girls, we girls started running around in seventh grade and continued through twelfth. 
and later as we all went away to college and moved to various parts of the country. The great distance from one another did not weaken our friendship. With cell phones and internet, we've remained good friends even to this day in 2023. In fact, I just spent five days with them as we traveled from different parts of the country and got together in August. I mention them because they are all believers in Jesus and have contributed many good things to help me in my life, praying and encouraging me when I needed it. I also have a group of friends here in Hayes who took me in when my husband died two years ago. I knew them before that, but not very well. I have now spent many hours with them sharing meals, traveling and attending events at the university, and just spent last weekend with them in Wichita. They have included me in many social events, but more than that, they have encouraged me and prayed for me and with me. And many of you have done the same. You have encouraged me. You have prayed for me. You have been patient with me. And you have loved me when I needed it. What do you want in your circle of friends? Men like Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, who came to comfort Job, but instead attempted to find fault with him and condemn him? Or would you like to have in your circle of friends people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who demonstrated unwavering faith and courage in the face of a life-threatening situation? Or friends like Jonathan and David, who are devoted to one another through good times and bad? But how do we gain friends like those in the second group, Daniel's friends, or like David and Jonathan? First, I think we should pray that God will help us find good friends and direct us to them. Secondly, we need to be that kind of friend to others. Luke 6.31 tells us, Do to others as you would have them do to you. And the King James Version of Proverbs 18.24 reads, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. Or thirdly, we need to be scarce when those of bad or questionable character come around, lest they influence us in the wrong way. For Proverbs 18.24 also reads, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is why most people who are Reformed alcoholics or Reformed drug users want and need new friends. I have two brothers that were alcoholics, and that was the one thing that they said when they came clean. They had to get a whole new group of friends. Fourthly, we must realize that Jesus is the greatest friend that we will ever have. He isn't fickle. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is sinless. He is loving, and he is forgiving. He gave his life for us. John 15, 13 tells us, Greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. In closing, I want to read a verse from a song that we sang earlier. 
Keep these words in mind as you go about your week. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus is the kind of friend we need, not a foe. You've been listening to Betty Rapp at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help to keep those podcasts free. If you'd like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our webpage at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the Donate button or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our webpage and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.